Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We discuss how Lewis Hamilton won the Monaco Grand Prix and look at Simon Pagenaud's victory in the Indianapolis 500. Monaco Grand Prix produced yet another victory for Lewis Hamilton. He led the race pretty much from start to finish, had control from pole position, but it was massively under pressure from Max Verstappen, who managed to launch an attack late in the race that almost got in the lead, but couldn't quite, and he ended up down in fourth after he'd served his time penalty at the chequered flag. I'm your host, Ed Shaw, and joining me to look back at the Monaco Grand Prix is, is Scott Mitchell. And I have to say this is a slightly unusual podcast for us because it's actually a mobile podcast. Yeah, podcasting on the move. We've got um, we, we've decided to get a little bit uh, innovative with our podcast on the way back to our to our place in where are we saying Villefranche-sur-Mer? Yes, round to the uh, to the west from Monaco. Yeah, so we're on our way back, and I don't know if you, I doubt you would have heard that in the background, but that was our driver, the esteemed Stuart Codling, off of F1 his, Racing, putting his catering skills to good use by driving us. Scott, this this race was it a a typical Monaco Borathon, as some have it, or was it a recreation of 1992, the year when Nigel Mansell harried Ayrton Senna to the chequered flag in the closing stages after suffering a puncture? 
Well, there is an element of that, isn't there? Because you had that situation where there's a an ailing car of sorts in front and a much faster car coming up behind. Uh, it really was a, a phenomenal performance from from Lewis Hamilton, I thought, to, to hold off Max Verstappen. Second year in a row, we've seen a driver have to pull out all the stops to to, to stay in front with a with a stricken car. Obviously, Lewis having to do 68 laps on the, the medium tyre, a little bit different to Daniel Ricciardo losing the, the MG UK in his Red Bull last year, um, but no, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a usual uh, Monaco Grand Prix. Ed, much like this is an unusual podcast, as we round a roundabout just down, just out down the road from the circuit. Actually, sort of as you as you come into Monaco, we we sort of looped back round via a fast food franchise to have a little bit of dinner, and now we're on our way back out. But no, it was it was it was unusual for a Monaco Grand Prix in that we didn't have any on track change. Obviously, Verstappen jumped. Bottas controversially in the pit stop, and we'll, we'll get onto that. But for a race that didn't have any on-track overtaking, I actually thought it was quite good. It was quite entertaining, wasn't it? It's quite tense. Well, to, to take that 1992 comparison, the 92 battle with Mansell behind Senna was just a few laps of frenetic pressure, wasn't it? With Mansell ducking and weaving, looking for a way past. This was kind of the the kind of growing tension, long form version, wasn't it? It was that. A whole second stint, as you said, over over 60 laps, Verstappen was right behind Hamilton, and, and Hamilton, the only one on the mediums of the, of the front runners, increasingly concerned about his tyres. At one stage, he said it was a mir- it would be a miracle if he was able to hang on. He was struggling badly with graining, and uh, we've been used to to Lewis Hamilton being deeply concerned about about whether the tyres will last, which is strange actually, because he's a, he's a very very good tyre manager. Well, I think he likes a bit of a bluff sometimes, doesn't he? he Possibly, he, yeah. I think he does like to sort of over-egg it a bit. I think it helps him sort of channel it as well in the car so he can sort of verbalise it, vocalise the, the problems that he's having. But Which is better, which is actually a good way to vent and better than dwelling on it yeah. in your mind, isn't it? You especially it if the you... team know. Especially yeah. if the team know that he's not just sort of... He's, he, he's not worrying them for no reason or he's they, they don't have to panic and think, oh my God, what are we going to do? Plan B, plan C. But he told us after the race in the press conference that I think with about 38 laps to go, he thought these tyres are done. I, I can't do this. Like I, I think he genuinely thought that he would fall short. I don't. It wasn't that he ever really wanted to switch to plan B. He said he'd, said he'd driven on those tyres until they blew up, which I don't really think was actually a, a threat. No, that was never going to happen. Um, but he, he talked about it. But yeah, it was a... It was just it was just quite cool to see that sort of play out complete opposite to Monaco 12 months ago which was basically drive as slow as you can uh, because you just want to make the tires last. This one actually seemed like Lewis like he said he was on the ragged edge when he took pole. I actually kind of felt like he was properly on the limit for most if not all of the second stint because Verstappen kept him properly honest. Well I think he was on the limit in terms of the key areas because if you look at it that whole the like the last 50 something laps all but two we're in the one minute 17 bracket, even as the car was getting lighter. But there were key points where he needed to be quick. Obviously, he wanted to be he wanted to be quick off the last corner off Anthony Nogue, so he wasn't under threat into Sandavot. He needed to be quick off Portier through the tunnel, so he wasn't under fire at the uh, at the chicane. But it's interesting because in those those closing stages, once we heard Verstappen had been given the the uh, the mode seven, which is the the kind of the, the quick race engine mode, so he could really push towards the end of the race, Hamilton. Obviously, had the overtake to defend. He was told about. He was told about Verstappen having the having the aggressive engine mode, and told he had his overtake to uh, to uh, overtake button to defend, and gave a slightly sarcastic response to uh, to that situation. But yeah, slightly withering response to that. But 
what we saw in those closing stages was was Lewis seemed to be struggling a little bit into the lows and through the really twisty bits. We saw him start to defend on about lap 70 into into lows and Verstappen had a bit of a look down the outside because he had to kind of put his car up. but there's never really a chance of getting past. But then Verstappen, for a series of laps, was getting closer and closer to Hamilton off Portier. And you could see Hamilton was struggling a little bit with the rear end. Verstappen had a few good runs out of it. And I remember saying to you on the lap, uh, on that lap, lap 76, where Verstappen made the move, right, it has to happen now or, he, or it can't happen because Verstappen needed to get past and he needed to pull five seconds on Hamilton in order to win because of the five-second penalty he had for an unsafe release. So Verstappen knew he had to go, didn't he? And, and that, I, I think that his move, which was investigated by the stewards, I think that was a, that, that was a great bit of Verstappen doing something of a, a do-or-die, but without going too far. And I actually thought that even in stepping over the limit slightly, because ultimately when, when Lewis moved across, Max locked up and uh, and they made contact. So he, he was slightly out of control. But even... This is what's so rather, impressive. Rather like that moped that looked like it was about to drive <laughs> under, the, under the front of the car. This is... Exactly. This is, what's, this is what's really impressive for me about 2019 spec Max Verstappen, or really the Max Verstappen we saw after Monaco last year. Is even in his sort of wildest moments, he's not really that wild, is he? It was... It was a sort of calculated now or never move. It was kind of a, this is a sensible place to do it. He didn't just lump out the inside going into Raskas or something like that. Um, and you, you, you're right. He'd been sort of working his way up to it. He knew that Lewis was going to be a bit vulnerable because he's having to, he's having to break earlier because he's got less grip and, and, and all, and all of this. And ultimately, Max knows that while he's sort of the, 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 he, he's sort of clinging on to that title fight in the hope that there'll be a, maybe that, maybe if there's a big Red Bull Honda turnaround, they can start clock coming back at them in the second half of the season. Personally, I don't see it happening. But so, so basically, Max knows that Lewis has more to lose than he does. So he can sort of show his nose and see if Lewis is going to give it up. But, but yeah, Lewis said after the race, he he just feels like here he's won here twice. It's 08 and 16. He's won here, but he just says that he just feels like there's always sort of something that just sort of keeps him from it. He doesn't feel like he's destined to win very much in Monaco. Uh, and so going even in those closing laps, just as it was getting nearer and nearer, he was just like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not letting go of this. I'm, I'm clinging on to this for all it's worth. Yeah, and, and I think he reacted well to the Verstappen move. There was contact, Verstappen's front right to Hamilton's rear left, but crucially it was survivable for both. And, and the race finished that way. I think it was right that it was deemed a racing incident. Stewards didn't take any, any action. But I think in terms of Hamilton's performance, you know, a really great pole that really dug deep. Uh, in order to beat to beat Bottas, you know, and he, and he described that as as close to a perfect lap as you can do uh, around Monaco. And I think he really deserved this. And as, as you say, that's that's three Monaco wins for him. It says a lot about Lewis Hamilton that he's only won Monaco three times. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I mean, for me, the 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 interesting thing about his Monaco wins that was that eight year wait in between. That that's <laughs> by Hamilton standards, even in those even in the McLaren years, that's that's amazing. But he's it? always been quick at Monaco. You know, that's he, what he said. He's, yeah. he's a strong driver. He, he won there in F three. He won there in GP two as well. Did he win both? Did he win two F three races in one? Yeah, it was a double header in two thousand and five, F three year series. So I think he may well have won both. Um, yeah, I think he did. But you know, he's he's really really at home there and I think it's it's good that he's got that that third victory and I think there, there should be many more because it is a rather unfair by his standards gap on, on, on his CV but yeah a great victory and a real shame that Verstappen wasn't rewarded with a with a podium because obviously he had this five second penalty so it was a weird move wasn't it that basically the success or failure of that move decided whether he would win or finish fourth yeah which, which is, is which is unusual but let's go back to that that unsafe release obviously 
obviously we had the early stages of the race that played out broadly as you'd expect the pace was a little bit higher from the leaders than might normally be because there was that threat of rain that never really came to pass it spotted with rain in the race but we had the safety car which was for Charles Leclerc scattering bits of tyre all over the track we'll, we'll talk about Leclerc again later but then obviously they all the top four headed to the pits which was Hamilton Bottas Verstappen Sebastian Vettel in the Ferrari the top four and then of course because Mercedes had to double stack Bottas was always vulnerable so yeah Bottas is released and then Verstappen's kind of released into him what, what did you make of that I was I, I think I was fairly convinced it was going to be an unsafe release because he literally got released into the side of Bottas, and I know he didn't get—I know he didn't like clatter into the side of him as soon as he got out of his box. But I find that the unsafe releases, if you're, yeah, if if a car has to move or lift or anything like that, then then yeah, it's pretty nailed on, and particularly in the narrow Monaco pit. Line. Yeah, so so yeah, it didn't surprise me that he got pinged for it. Um, Max said that he didn't see Bottas to his right hand side, so the moving over to the right wasn't wasn't to put Bottas in the wall. Bottas says that Max just kept drifting over towards me, and ultimately they made slight contact. Then Bottas made contact with the wall, and it broke the it, 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 it broke his wheel, so he had to come back in a a lap later. And it's it's tricky because I always find it I always find it very difficult when you talk about are you punishing an, an act or a consequence but it felt it felt really hard it felt but it felt really I want to say lenient in a way that there was a still by only giving him a five second time penalty there was an opportunity for Max to rescue his race and his chances whereas Bottas could have been Bottas could have been Bottas's race absolutely ruined because Bottas thought that by having to have another pit stop, Bottas was actually expecting to plummet down the order, and then there's no way of making that back to a to a sufficient amount. As it was, he only dropped to, to fourth, so he lost the place to Vettel. And fortunately for him, because Max couldn't get past Lewis and, and make a break for it, Bottas and Vettel stayed within five seconds of of Max, so they moved up to second and third in the finish. So Bottas ultimately only loses one place. Crucially. He, he still finishes ahead of Verstappen, so you can you can argue that there's justice done there, in a justice of sorts anyway. But I don't know that the five second time penalty, the five second time penalty, there is precedent for it. So it is a it is a consistent decision from the stewards. I'm not questioning that they that they just arbitrarily picked five seconds and that was wrong. I just I'm not entirely sure whether that's an acceptable penalty, but maybe it is. Maybe this is just one of those circumstances where you just had Bottas come out and dropped to 12th or something like that and had his race wrecked. You just say, well, that's just how it goes. I think the main reason they do tend to penalise these things is because it's a safety issue, particularly in that pit lane that you could get a car turned around into a pit crew or whatever, which is normally the the reason they, they hit it. So if anything, they could have gone more more harsh with with that so it's almost the the consequences to the race of others is sort of secondary to that safety safety reason but the good thing was it made the race still be alive which was uh, which is really positive and we've already talked about the Hamilton Verstappen battle so it creates that unusual situation I mean Bottas ended up fourth he had to make that second stop he'd originally put mediums on 
So he came back in. They put hards on simply because that was what they had. They had, didn't have any mediums left. They either had used softs or fresh set of hards. So they had to put the hards onto onto Bottas, which probably made his would race been, a little been, bit easier. Would have been fascinating to see what would have happened had it been a Merck one-two and Bottas had been on the the hards and all over Lewis. Would would Merck have said? Let, I wonder if Merck would have released Bottas and said that you're nailed on to win here or or would he have been a shield to Hamilton to make the mediums last? I imagine that Hamilton would have moaned a bit less and they'd have driven around nose to tail probably, pretty much. I think um, Hamilton wouldn't have wanted to suggest that they, that, give them the idea that they should let Bottas, uh, Bottas go past him. But Yeah, perhaps. Bot- um, Max did make it more interesting, didn't he? Let's, yeah, yeah. That, it, that, is it, one, it, that is the it, good it made, thing from It made that. the race and uh, in the end, Bottas and Vettel, Vettel, Ended up finishing um, second overall. Uh, had a relatively quiet race, but a pretty decent race. Obviously, recovered reasonably well from that. That shunt, he had an FP3 that cost him most of Saturday morning's practice session before qualifying at Sandovot. He just nosed into the barrier, which was uh, an unfortunate error for, for him. And then, yeah, Bottas competing the podium ahead of, ahead of the staff. And, of course, we had Pierre Gasly getting the fastest lap. We had that free pit stop at the end, doing a thing that annoys me, that basically... <laughs> the last place car in Class A just by default ends up getting the fastest lap. Yeah, so a bonus point for not being particularly good in at, at driving a Grand Prix car quickly, as quickly as his teammate or the other guys in that Class A battle. But um, one one thing to say about Vettel is it's... Um, do you think it's pig Ferrari that in a season in which they've failed to make the most of the times when their car's mega arguably their worst performing weekend of the year and Vettel fluke second the best result of the season <laughs> yeah it's funny isn't it it was a it was another difficult weekend for them they're still struggling with uh, getting the best out of the car and yeah but ultimately they they played that race fine there wasn't there wasn't any great challenge for for Vettel overall but they made the right calls when they had to make them and he drove a, a decent race. It was difficult because there was the traffic jam that, that was created by by Hamilton. You had that bizarre situation where at one stage George Russell and the Williams was the was the fastest car on track. There was also a message to Hulkenberg when he, he basically told, "Well, bafflingly, you're the fastest man on track at the moment," <laughs> which uh, which Hulkenberg found uh, found amusing because Renault were was struggling. So it was um, an odd race, but yeah, I mean, ultimately good for them to to at least stop that run of Mercedes. One-two finishes, which uh, which w- would have happened had Bottas not had that that cracked wheel rim from the uh, the pit stop blunder. But I guess if we're going to talk about Ferrari, we should get on to Charles Leclerc, yep. uh, who we mentioned earlier. He had a, a fairly brief cameo in the race, um, made up a position at the start, passed Norris. Uh, he managed to pass uh, Roman Grosjean at Rascas, and he tried to repeat the move on Hulkenberg. That didn't come off. He, I think he tagged the inside wall actually with his right rear as well, and and. Had the half spin, and then he had he had loads of damage, so he, he retired shortly afterwards. But his weekend was obviously defined by falling in Q one, having set the pace in FP three. Yeah, unforgivable error, wasn't it? Um, we can rattle through the reasons for that if you like, Ed. Um, you're nodding vigorously, which is obviously good. Audio. That means I'm expecting a vigorous summary. Or, but it was a good audio stimulus for a podcast. Um, Basically, um, Leclerc went out, he did a lap uh, in Q1. He then should have gone faster, but he locked up into Raskas, which I think put him, he should have been three or four attempts quicker than he actually was. Uh, but Ferrari still was still quite confident. He, he was still beneath what they thought would be the cutoff time to get through. Um, but this was the problem. They, uh, they stuck religiously to that cutoff time. 
Um, and although I assume they were adapting that cutoff time based on the fact that they establish what time they need based on real-time sectors, so it's obviously a moving target, what what they fail to do through Q1 is leave enough margin uh, for 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 the for the cutoff time to change. What Mattia Bonotto, the Ferrari team principal, admitted is that Ferrari basically didn't account for a track evolution and for driver confidence in uh, resulting in such a big gain in lap time as the the drivers having two, three, four laps in Q1 picked up more time, which was so twisted. It was so. Tw- Twistedly ironic, because not 24 hours before this, we were given a strategy masterclass from Ferrari, and I think that's that's been used to sort of mock them a little bit. The only thing I found that was just difficult, really, was that they they talked in in this Ferrari media briefing on Friday of just how valuable driver confidence was. So the fact that that was one of the things they underestimated when it came to calculating that cutoff time and leaving a bit of margin was was a pretty unforgivable error and it all just that set them up for a fall and then they failed to just adhere or failed to notice these warning signs that were actually quite evident as Q1 evolved they just left Leclerc in the garage Leclerc said to them do we do we not need to run again I think we're vulnerable here and the, the Bonato said the team said nope we we trust our data uh, we thought the data was enough and clearly it wasn't and so he got knocked out by Vettel of all people saving himself from being in the drop zone and just awful just a comedy of errors almost and it was a failure of risk management ultimately yeah they obviously they wanted to get through Q1 on only one set of tires because then you make sure you will definitely have two sets of tires for for Q3 you, you would want that and the other top teams did that and in fact Kevin Magnussen achieved it as well in the Haas he qualified really well but yeah it, it just ruined their weekends and I think there comes a point where you're in that position, you have to just send the car out. And, he, and obviously the gap between Leclerc um, and Hamilton on first run times was was small, wasn't it? Well, Hamilton stayed out. I, I guess the difference there is that you had uh, Leclerc had flat spotted the tyres, but they should have just brought him in and sent him back yeah, out Yeah, but that's the point. Like you, you, you react to your circumstances, don't you? You don't just stick to a predetermined target. Yeah, Mercedes yeah. told Lewis he was safe and that he, he could come in if he wanted. And even though Lewis was under... The, the cutoff time that, that Mercedes had, Lewis said, well, no, actually, I want to stay out, see if I can go quicker. And he did. He went He went a fair chunk quicker um, and, and made himself safe. And, and that, and you know, you, you you alluded to that desire to have an extra set of tyres. Well, as Bonotto pointed out, only in hindsight did they realise that there's no point having extra sets of tyres if you're not actually there to participate in Q2 and Q3. Yeah, exactly. It, it's... It's not been brilliant strategically at times here for Ferrari. I think there have been some things they've been unfairly criticised for. For example, Leclerc's strategy in Baku, I had no problem with, but other aspects of that weekend weren't very sensibly done. So I think they can definitely sharpen up in that regard as well as making the car quicker. And then Leclerc, he gave it a go in the race. His move on Hulkenberg was optimistic, but ultimately, but I, uh, ultimately I, he did for his race. I can't blame him for, for attacking by any stretch of the imagination. No, and he said that he needed to be aggressive, and I understand that, but I said... Uh, I think I said this morning, uh, I don't think Leclerc's going to finish this race. I think he's either going to get caught up in some midfield madness or he's just going to be a little bit too eager to, to make amends and something's going to go wrong. And I, and I take no pleasure in being right on that because I really like Charles. I rate him and I actually think his racecraft is superb. Of all of the drivers in that, be behind the, the, the front row, which is probably the safest place to be in Monaco, 
Leclerc has probably got the best track record. He was amazing last year, despite being in a back of the grid slash midfield car. Kept his nose clean so well. So it's not that I thought that he's a particularly risky driver. I just thought in a Ferrari on his home soil, there's that extra bit. It's not desperation to recover, but there's always that risk of overreaching to try and make amends. And we've had this conversation countless times, haven't we? You can only ever do 100%. You can't do 110% in the race to make up for a 90% job in qualifying, for example. So it's not a, it's not about those sort of averages. And yeah, it just unraveled for, for Ferrari and Leclerc, which was a massive shame. But in Monaco... Saturday's half the job well more than half the job isn't it and unfortunately the job for Leclerc was made really really difficult for, for a stupid reason absolutely and as you said uh, Pierre Gasly came through to, to finish fifth he's having a difficult first season with, with Red Bull there is pace in him but whether he's got the whether he's able to properly unlock it and properly adapt remains to be to be seen and, and the driver who I thought was probably one of the star performers of the weekend He's, I think he's going to get a 10 out of 10 in my, my driver ratings. Ooh, sneak preview. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. They are a work in progress as we as it stands. Is Carlos Sainz. Excellent. Sixth place. Now, what impressed me about Carlos, I think he did I think he did very well in qualifying. He was one of the few drivers actually to string together his theoretical best lap uh, by putting the three best sectors together, which very few drivers were able to do. That put him into a, a good starting position. He actually didn't. The, the, the first few seconds of the race didn't go brilliantly for him, and Albon got past him, went around the outside of him at Sandovot. But then that great move Science made around the two Toro Rossos oh. at the top of the hill on the first lap. Beautiful. Just brilliant. And then when he needed pace, just after he'd made his stop, just to just to prevent the hint of a threat of an overcut, it, he did it. And, and his reward was sixth place. It was a class win, effectively. And I just think it was really, really strong. He's had a really strong start to the season after, a, I would say, a slightly up-and-down year with Renault last year. Yeah, he seems to be... Uh, thriving in his new environment at McLaren, he, he's reveling in that that new opportunity. Oh, overtaking manoeuvre, Codders, you were slow on traction off the hairpin. We've been overtaken. What was that? Was that a Mercedes? It was a. BMW. It was a, it was a, a moron. A BMW. Well, they're definitely pressing on. Uh, let's hope we don't end up. Uh, they don't end up in a, in a ditch. The right there, but anyway, and you were pitting anyway because we've just got to our abode and you're about to do your your tricky uh, reverse park. So Shall we do a live commentary on the podcast for this. Uh, I think we should get back to. Uh, well, we talk about Carlos Sainz, weren't we? But yeah, I think a best possible result result for him. Yeah, I think he did very, very well. Um, it was difficult because he started the year with no points at, for through no fault of his own, and since since he scored his it was back, who he scored his first points, wasn't he? It was the first three races of the year, he, he managed to. He was incredibly unlucky. He in the was early races. so unfortunate. Um, I actually think he's been excellent. He's. Um, I never. I, it's not that I. It's not that I doubted him as such. I just wondered where. Like I want. Always wonder where someone rates on a. On on, on that sort of scale of driver ability, and Carlos always seemed sort of good, but. A bit erratic, uh, but he's really. St- if he if he continues this form, I think he's going to be. He's going to be establishing himself as one of. If he's in contention to be the star midfield performer of the season at this rate. Yeah, very much so. I've, I've been very, very impressed with him, and he had to do well to beat the two Toro Rossos because Kvyat and Albon did a did a good job. Kvyat's having a, a, a strong season on his uh, comeback as well. Um, Albon was really struggling on uh, on Saturday. Uh, a few bleeps there from the uh, the Citroen's parking assistance uh, uh, radar there. But a very other, good, other a very... French automobile manufacturers are available. Exactly, yeah. I'd recommend you use them because this is not this is not my favourite hire car. Um, <laughs> just in case anyone thought we were giving them <laughs> free plugs, don't get one. No, no, it's actually it's been fine. It's been oh, he's and Codders has set off the high intensity air conditioning. <laughs> this, but, uh, the production the production levels of this podcast are. Uh, 
slightly different to, to usual, aren't they? I, I, I like the ad- say ambiance, I like atmosphere. The- yeah, I did earlier. It was a bit hard. I, I think I like the added uh, the added excitement. Anything could happen, but and yeah, it usually and, does. And so we had um, science six, Kvyat seventh, uh, Alban eighth. You know, good for Toro Rosso to get that that double points finish. You would say, and then then you had Ricardo just pipped Roman Grosjean for tenth once Grosjean had that five second penalty, which didn't look very likely a few laps from home, but. Ricardo motored up because Grosjean was, uh, was sort of stuck in that in that traffic jam. But I guess the unlucky drivers were Daniel Ricciardo, who got ahead of Kevin Magnussen. Magnussen qualified brilliantly and uh, and started in uh, sixth in, place, in sixth place, fifth place. It would have been actually, oh, of course, because Gasly had Gasly the, had the place, penalty, penalty yeah. for impeding, which is and Leclerc bang, wasn't he, there. He was bang to bang to rights. So, you know, Leclerc was down the order, but Ricardo got ahead, and then Ricardo proved to be singularly slow in the first stint, and then Ricardo pitted. Magnussen pitted, they dropped back down. Then the other group, that group of cars, Science, Torosso, stayed out. And that that kind of default strategy, I expected a lot more of them to pit, but actually it was the correct thing to do. And that, that stitched up. Um, yeah, Magnussen just never really came back from it. And Ricardo just managed to nick that, uh, nick that point. It just shows how in this race strategy and luck does play a big part. Ricardo was absolutely furious with the Renault strategy by all accounts after the race. So he felt that they'd missed a missed a big trick um and it's yeah i think he just felt that if everyone else could see that a certain strategy was available why didn't they uh it was obviously down to whether you pit or didn't pit under that uh under the safety car wasn't it yeah very much so yeah the benefit was for there for those who who didn't pit it, it was helped by the fact that lando norris was used as a rolling robot by by mclaren he wasn't having the easiest of weekends he stayed out but they realized they could use him to make sure science got the gap he needed so Norris created his traffic jam. So we had after the safety car we had these two traffic jams, one behind Hamilton, and then one behind Norris, who was running in uh, in tenth place. That was good strategy by McLaren, and I think it was actually quite quite intelligent of them to do that to to help those guys out. So all these factors played together. I spoke to Gunter Steiner after the race, and he said, "Well, yeah, in retrospect, in hindsight, yeah, of course we should have pitted, but it wasn't so clear before the fact. Hindsight's a great thing, and we couldn't. We we kind of." were unlucky with all these these circumstances. Then Magnussen was just mired in the midfield. And of course, Sergio Perez was annoyed because he tried to pass Magnussen and then Magnussen cut the chicane. Any particular problem with that? Checo was complaining about it. Um, it's the sort of thing that we've seen before. I, I, I thought that thought that Perez actually pulled off quite a good move, but Magnussen is a hard racer, isn't he? And he, he probably didn't like the idea of being mugged off. And if you turn in and make contact or, you, or you're trying to avoid contact, you can always... Uh, plead the benefit of the doubt can't you and uh, justify it as you've been forced off the road which I dare say was probably Kevin's motivation and the final thing we should briefly mention is Perez the incident he posted on his on his uh, on, on Twitter didn't he the onboard of him coming out of the pits and then this wasn't in the in the live feed and then two marshals on the track in front of his car I mean he, he brought he brought this up off, straight after the race talking mentioned that this was really dangerous and he saw the video and thought wow could easily have uh, had a marshal or two in serious, in serious trouble there, how do you hit them? Yeah, when you said uh, the only thing we haven't mentioned, I thought you were going to uh, finally pay tribute to the um, to the excellent uh, 2-1 Charlton Athletic win in the League One playoff final today. Yes, you were, you were thrilled by that. I was absolutely delighted by you it. You weren't I'd... so delighted by the hilarious own goal that put Charlton Athletic a goal down. Which, no, but it, which I, showed... I suggest it may be the third tier of English football to get promotion, but that own goal was a classic of the genre. I, I suggest you... Yeah, you, it, anyway, it's, anyway, well, it's, well a, worth check... a, it's well worth a, a little search on social media. But I found out about my, my beloved football team's result in the post-race pe- press conference, uh, 95th minute winner. So that was lovely. Uh, sadly, the... Uh, 
the the, the Perez incident or the near miss was was a lot more serious than this. Um, fortunately, it wasn't serious in the in the it ended in injury. You're right; it could have been uh, could have been a horrific. But given the given how much the FAA was was pushing volunteers this week and how much they often try to uh, preach road safety and, and, and there all, was a pedestrian road things. safety message that they uh, put out on their Twitter feed. Just as we published that story about Perez, yeah, I mean, <laughs> she's quite quite ironic. Yeah, you can't make that sort of timing up. It's uh, it's very much uh, quite a brilliant coincidence, but that sort of stuff is difficult. I don't really, I I, I don't want to sound like I'm pointing fingers because I really don't have a lot of information or fact about this. But wasn't there an incident in the F2 race as well with some marshals recovering a car, but they were doing it under yellows rather than a or there was no safety car. It was the chicane. They were recovering a car at the chicane, and there was no safety car. And there's a lot of marshals on track or on the runoff. Yeah, it would have been a race control decision, I guess. And I don't really know exactly what the circumstances were behind the Perez thing, but it's one of those things that whatever happens, you look at the onboard, and that definitely shouldn't have happened. So no. they, need, they need to look at it. And because you know the marshals, their safety has to be has to be looked after, and it can be very very serious. Well, um, that's what I meant. Like regardless, of, uh, not not trying to say that there's sort of a, a common link between the two or that race control is responsible for, for both incidents but I think we were it's by by all accounts we were quite lucky on we were, we were quite lucky on two different occasions this weekend those those sort of things are never nice to see um, and I, I guess you can just be we got lucky on this occasion that nothing happened but luck shouldn't come into it when you've got the, the, the safety and well-being of volunteers um, at risk well, I think that should wrap up part one of the podcast. We are now safely parked by our, uh, well, I was going to say palatial Airbnb. It's, it's got a nice view. It's got it's quite a nice little, uh, little spot. It's, uh, it's up a series of hairpins that where, of course, Codder's got passed on the exit, one of them just before parking. So, uh, yes, that we're going to bring this part to uh, to an end. And I'm going to be joined shortly by Matt Beer to talk about the Indianapolis 500. But for now, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell. And thanks, Stuart Colding, for your excellent driving, despite losing a position right at the last moment. Uh, I'd I, I declare that as being almost as dangerous as the old pit lane entry at uh, Le Mans. He came steaming past me. He could have done a Pierre Levey if I hadn't uh, waved my arm. Well, the good news for those of you who are disappointed not to have heard anything from Stuart Codlin because he's been too busy driving is he will be appearing on our friends at F1 Strategy Report podcast. Their podcast should be out uh, tomorrow. Uh, he'll join Michael Laminato, who was a previously guest on this podcast, and, and I appeared on the F1 Strategy Report podcast after the Baku Grand Prix. It's a good podcast. If you like the, the Autosport podcast, you're definitely going to enjoy that. You can find out about it on F1StrategyReport.com. Obviously, they dig into all the strategic intricacies of races, how races are won, how races are lost, a different guest every week lots of very well regarded journalists turning up on on that one their post spanish grand prix episode had lawrence barreto formerly of autosport on it so that's a that's a good quality podcast well worth subscribing to and you will be able to hear the wisdom of Stuart codling who is right now sitting very very quietly in the front seat of the car having completed parking not wishing to interrupt this uh, this podcast even though i imagine he's very keen to get inside to uh, to get into uh, to to, uh, to a glass of wine and finishing off his work for f1 racing magazine but yeah strategy f1 strategy report podcast uh, well worth a listen michael laminato on there he definitely knows what he's talking about in terms of formula one and it's really good to 
dig into the the details of the race. It's the kind of thing I I, I love to do, and I think autosport listeners, autosport readers will generally enjoy it as well because it really gets into the the heart of the race, just as we like to think we do on this podcast. And who can argue with added Stuart Codling as they'll have in their Moico Grand Prix episode? So F1 Strategy Report dot com for that. Plus, it's also available on the usual podcast suppliers. Well, welcome back to part two of our podcast. And of course, it wasn't just about the Monaco Grand Prix today. We also had the Indianapolis 500. Uh, I was able to kind of keep a quarter of an eye on it while dealing with, with goings on in Monaco. So I don't have a huge amount to offer, but a man who does is Matt Beer, who joins me now to look back at, uh, well, I was going to say an exciting race. It sounded like it was a, it was a pretty dramatic and, uh, an engaging one, but you'll know much, much better than me. Simon Paginot, of course, won for Team Penske. So how did he do it? Oh, in the end, it was in very exciting style. There were a few parts in the middle of the race where it was a little bit processional, a little bit single file and spread out. But uh, when it came down to the business end, it was a proper wheel-to-wheel, head-to-head with Alexander Rossi, of course, a, a past winner. Um, I think the final tally was uh, five passes to the lead in the last 13 laps after a, a late restart. So, um, yeah, in in the end, it was... Uh, properly wheel-to-wheel duel decided with a pass of two laps to go really good stuff at the end I had to say I was slightly surprised to hear Pagano prevailed because I'd seen Rossi uh, was at his last stop having that problem with the fueling the, the fueler couldn't get the, the the nozzle and was that his penultimate stop but it, it, he'd obviously lost some lost some time but then he was motoring through so it, it, I sort of the bits I've seen have said yeah Rossi is really hooked up and, and the fact that it was that he did get into the lead in the closing stages made me think surely this is going to be his race yeah, Rossi, Rossi really came alive in the second half of, of the race. He had repeated uh, refueling delays, um, but it never it never cost him any ground that he couldn't regain within a, within a few laps. Um, just before, there was a late red flag after after Graham Rahal and Sebastian Bourdais collided and collected quite a few other cars in their wake. Actually, I wouldn't say collected, a few, quite a few other cars collided in the tyre smoke behind them. Um, there was then an amusing incident with Rahal jumping out of his car and going straight over to confront Bourdais before he had got out, which will make some interesting news stories uh, in the morning. But um, but yeah, that caused a, a long stoppage and a long yellow and a red flag. And after that, Rossi had just taken the lead from Pagano for the first time just before the, the incident. And you thought, um, given the pace he's shown in the second half of the race, this is this is Rossi's to control from here. But Pagano came straight back at him on, the, on that restart. And then it was just uh, head-to-head between the two of them. There was about... Probably about half a dozen laps where Pagano was holding the lead and holding Ray Hall off, um, but you just knew it's you know it's the Indianapolis 500. It's going to go mad with two or three laps to go, um, and Rossi retaliated, storms down the outside at turn one. Maybe went a bit too soon as there were three laps to go at that point, and certainly gave Pagano a chance to counter attack. He did that one lap later, and uh, he did hold on with some. Um, Probably, if you're looking at it from a European point of view, you'd say there was weaving going on, but it's fairly standard at the speedway that you do move around to break the toe at that point, and as long as you're not squeezing somebody when they're beside you, which Pagano actually certainly wasn't. There was some some dubious squeezing going on going on elsewhere during the race, but um, this was really respectful, leaving enough room, wheel to wheel stuff, um, really well earned. Any any doubts about Pagano as a super speedway racer? You know, thoroughly put to bed by this win. Well, and it's, as far as I could tell, Pagano was up there absolutely throughout the whole race. Yeah, the first half, he was completely in control, really. Well, I say completely in control, as much as he can be in a modern Indy 500. Um, the Carpenter cars, Ed Carpenter and Spencer Pickett were quick early on. Uh, Will Power got involved at the front for a while, so did Joseph Newgarden. But really, it was always Pagano who seemed to 
seem to come back and and have a bit of a margin. Um, his his vulnerability look it might be fuel mileage because he tended to be the first front front runner to stop every time at every round of green flag pit stops. Um, and certainly towards the end of the race, he had a fuel target to hit, which uh, Rossi didn't. The Honda runners were stretching their stints a lot more, and that was helping them make up for their slight power deficit to Chevy that seemed to be seemed to be evident. But when it came to it at the end of the race, uh, th- that fuel mileage wasn't a concern after the last yellow, and uh, you know Pagano just did everything he needed to to both hold Rossi off and then repass him when, when he did get ahead. And where exactly did uh, Takuma Sato come from? We know he's quick at the speedway. He won there in, in 2017, obviously in the Ray Hall car now. He's an Andretti car a couple of years ago. But he he was third and seemed to be hovering around and, and in, in the final mix-ups. But he wasn't right up there all race, was he? No, he was actually right down to the last of the cars running at one point. He was, he was starting to make progress from a midfield start early on. And then one of his early pit stops, one of the rear tyres uh, wasn't seated properly. Something got uh, got between it, basically. So he had to come back in for an extra drop. Um, drop dropped right down to 32nd place. He was starting to make ground back through the field, but really it was the timing of the yellows and particularly the stoppage getting him back on sync strategy-wise that, that really worked for him. And then uh, in that final sprint after the restart, it was absolutely phenomenal. At, at one point, you might have put money on Sato with about 10 laps to go because he'd carved through the, the front runner so quickly after that last restart and was coming after Rossi and Pagano. But in the very final sprint, he couldn't quite uh, get stuck in with them in a way he would have wanted. But you know, it, it just—it's great to have a driver like that uh, getting into that 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 mix-up. And it seemed that because Joseph Newgarden was fourth, Will Power fifth, Ed Carpenter sixth, they were again drivers that were up there all day, give or take on on pace. Did, did either of those three ever look like they quite had that last edge to have to have prevailed at any stage, or were they just that half a step behind? Newgarden had a spell in the lead in the first half of the race and and uh, looked quite quite promising at that point. But really, I think. Realistically, this was gonna this was gonna be Pagano or Rossi unless something weird happened. But by the second half of the race, it was clear that those two had a, a very small but uh, but usable edge. Basically, even though the, their cars were behaving in quite different ways, particularly on the fuel mileage, you you realised probably heading into the running that it was gonna be one of those two unless they tripped over each other or something bizarre happened with. Uh, with yellows and strategy. Um, it's typical Indianapolis, though, in that you probably had a dozen cars at least that were front runners at some point. Connor Daly had a great run through the field at one point. Uh, Ed Carpenter was very quick. There were loads of drivers who were around the top six and looked like proper contenders at different stages. And uh, just in the, fi- in the final uh, head-to-head tussle at the end, there's always a little bit of a breakaway. And you look at the results and see somebody back in 7th or 8th who you thought might be a winner and actually nothing really went wrong for them. It's just that competitive a race at the end. Um, that, that was very much the category Newgarden fell into, I think, and Carpenter as well, just not having that final edge. Um, Will Power was another one who came back through the field. Uh, he was Pagano's closest rival for a while in the first half of the race. Ended up uh, taking a bit too much speed into his pit box at an early stop. Um, one of his crew members took a bit of a knock and was was okay with the look of it. But more importantly, penalty-wise, he ran over an air hose, which is always a, a sin in, in oval racing, and was sent to the back of the field. So he went from seconds to 30 seconds very quickly. Uh, things didn't fall as well for him as they had for Sato timing-wise, but he did come back through to the top six at the end, which showed, showed what might have been in a way. But when they were head-to-head earlier in the race, Pagano still looked like the, the driver with the edge there. 
And which which other drivers should we be we'd be looking at this race? Obviously, you mentioned briefly Ray Hall and and Bourdais had that uh, had that contact. They both seem to be in in the thick of the action at that stage. So we're also at times looking like potential challengers, certainly for a, for a strong finish. Yeah, um, Bourdais definitely in particular. He had a good package by the look of it. But it was interesting that even after his exit, Dale Coin Racing still got a, a seventh place finish with Santino Ferrucci now. You know, Ferrucci was very much a pariah last year, and, and frankly, for good reasons. Um, but he's he's had a pretty sensible start to his his full time IndyCar move, and, and he was impressive today. He he had a, a wild ride dodging the aftermath of the uh, Bordet and Rahal collision. Was quite fortunate to not get collected in that. Has taken the grass, but you know he was doing some very effective racing. The coin cars are quick at Indy as well, as well, aren't they? James Davison was looking good for a while early on. Ended up getting rear-ended by Cash and Nevers in the pit lane. Um, but yeah, Ferrucci coming up with seventh was a little bit of a hint of what Coyne was capable of. I'm pretty sure Bordet would have been somewhere in the top five mix had he not had that shunt with Rahal, which um, you could see why Rahal was cross about it, really. He was he was alongside, Bordet turned in. Um, that sent Bordet into quite a long slide and then quite a nasty impact with the wall. His car rode up a little bit. Um, broke Rahal suspension. He just plowed into the barriers as well. Um, yeah, but. Bourdais, I still think him and Coyne have got an indie win in them potentially as a combination, but um, we didn't get a chance to see where where he would have featured at the end this time. And coming back to Ferrucci, I presume he'll get Rookie of the Year for that. It doesn't always go to the highest finishing rookie, it is a vote, but you know, to, to get presumably Indy Rookie of the Year, I don't know if that's been announced yet, That that's really positive for a driver who, as you said 12 months ago from his F2 antics, was... Uh, looking like somebody no one would go near. Yeah, absolutely. He yeah, last summer he looked like a driver who was completely out of control, um, both on track and, and morally, really. Um, but this was a very controlled performance today. It was. It wasn't a great day for the rookies. There weren't a lot of rookies in the field in a way. Actually, it was quite conspicuous that teams were calling up people with good speedway experience for this race. Um, Marcus Ericsson was a high-profile rookie. Um, he ended up having a, a wild and bizarre spin into the pit lane at one point, uh, which sport was quite a solid debut indie for him. Felix Rosenquist moved towards the front a couple of times. Ganassi was getting very good fuel mileage, but he ended up being wiped out in the aftermath of Ray Hall and Bourdais coming together. So really, Ferrucci was a standout rookie, so both results-wise and, and in the vote, that should that should go to him. Yeah, good for him. You know, obviously he's a he's a young guy, and th- these things. You know, I don't think anyone should have things things they do when they're really young too heavily held against them. So uh, he's he's grown as a as driver and a, a person. Yeah, all all credit to him. So, what were the other stories uh, through the field that that caught your eye? Uh, one of the a uh, couple of heartbreaking ones actually. Colton Herter um, ran into trouble after just three laps. He'd been superb in qualifying for his first Indy 500. Was the quickest Honda. Um, one of only two Honda runners to make it into the pole shootout. Um, started fifth, and he's been so impressive this year. But he uh, he hit what he thought was a gearbox problem just three laps into the race, and and that was that. He he was absolutely devastated by that. Um, not just because of it being a sad way to finish his first Indy, but since he took that win at Austin, he he, he was an early exit from the Indy Road Course race in a, in a restart collision a few weeks ago as well, and he was very much not just sad at going out of Indy but just annoyed that he was the first retirement from a race again uh, he's got such a long career ahead of him potentially and he's achieved so much in his first few races that he needn't worry too much but it, it was sad to see not it's sad to not get a chance to see what he would have done in the race um, 
sad for Kyle Kaiser to be in early retirement as well, and Ben Hanley, um, two small teams, inexperienced teams, particularly in IndyCar for Dragon Speed. Um, both of those were early retirements. I mean, they they achieved their their big goal just by getting into the race, and both squads, both Junkos and Dragon Speed, really impressed what they did on qualifying weekend. But it would have been nice if they could have... Uh, got at least a top 20 or something to show for it, but neither featured particularly long. Hanley had a mechanical problem with like a drive shaft coming out of the pits and uh, Kaiser put it into the wall with a spin that he sort of caught in one direction then lost in the other direction again and ended up in the outside wall after pointing towards the inside for a while. Um, but hopefully the uh, the whole level of spotlight that him and Junkos were, uh, were in after knocking Alonso and McLaren out a week ago. They've, they've uh, signed several new backers during this week. So even though their Indy 500 race didn't go too well, hopefully it's been quite a career boost for both driver and team overall. I guess the the biggest Minot success story was Pippa Mann in 16th place in the Clawson Marshall, Marshall racing car on the lead lap. So, you know, their battle was getting into the race. But to finish so strongly, is it's very positive for that. That's a very another sort of part, very part-time team and, uh, yeah, a big result. Yeah, absolutely. We, <laughs> there's a stereotypical thing that you sort of um, you shake your head at the NASCAR driver saying we had a top 20 car today like it's an achievement. Um, but actually, in the Indy 500, if you're a part-time team, part-time driver, um, less resources than the others, less cash, less preparation, actually, if you're getting in the top 20 against all these big multi-car teams, that's a job well done, really, isn't it? And... Uh, Pippa Man's marking herself out as a bit of an Indy, Indy 500 specialist now. I'd, I'd like her to get a bit of stability with this program and perhaps come back with the same package. It's great to have the Clausen family involved in IndyCar racing as well. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to be proud of there with the 16th place. It's definitely not a result to be to be sniffed at. And circling back round to the, to the race winner, Simon Pagano, Obviously, we, we mentioned this in the preview podcast. He's been talked about as a vulnerable Penske driver. Was he going to be replaced for, for next season? And now... He's won the 500. He's taken pole for the Indy 500. He won the Indy uh, road race earlier this month. He's leading the championship. So things, uh, is this just a, a brief purple patch or do we think things have really turned around for him and he'll, he'll have cemented his place in the, in the Penske lineup for years to come? Well, whether he can sustain it for years to come, yeah, not sure yet. There's a lot of changes ahead in IndyCar over the next few years. But, you know, he's... He was struggling to get his setups right and his uh, the driving style suited to the uh, the change of aero kit when it went to a universal kit last year, having been so impressive on his way to his first title for Penske. Um, a lot of it seemed to be confidence-related as well, and you can't get a better confidence boost than winning on a road course with a bit of rain thrown in as well, and then taking pole on a, on a speedway, and then winning on a speedway in a proper wheel-to-wheel fight. You know, we talk about... Um, IndyCar being such a test of all-round ability with its variety of circuits. Well, he's basically succeeded on every test apart from a tight street course in the space of three weeks. So, you know, he goes to Detroit next time and just rattle one of those off as well, and he's done the full set. But he's shown he can he can win in pretty much any condition he'll face in IndyCar. He's uh, on a massive confidence high now. Certainly got Penske's faith again. So, yeah, I think that's definitely given him some job security, and it's set him up nicely to be a, a real proper title contender again. It's it's him and his teammate Newgarden, one point apart at the top of the standings. A um, lot of season to go still, but Indy with its double points, which I do think is a totally justified double points because it's twice the length of race and it's a phenomenally big event. Um, season finale double points, far less keen on that, but Indy 500 double points, yeah, fair enough. Um, that's that's thrown him right back into the thick of the championship fight and uh, 
yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fun to see what he does next. I've been a Pagano fan for a long time, actually. I think his uh, his sports car exploits way back in the American Le Mans series were really impressive, and his his early IndyCar adventures um, showed so much potential. It was great to see him called up to Penske, and then um, after a slightly slow start, really thrive there. So, yeah, if it would be, it would have been a shame if that one title had been a flash in the pan almost, and then he'd, he'd fallen out of favor at Penske. But, you know, Penske really prizes Indy 500 success, doesn't he? And, and this was a, a very well-earned, proper racer's Indy 500 success. No, very, very much so. And, uh, and the final verdict, obviously last year's race was heavily criticized as a, as a relatively dull 500. Some changes were made to the cars and a little bit to the tyres to try and improve it. What, what's your overall verdict in terms of the, just the, the excitement of the race and, uh, and, and how it worked from that perspective? I think I don't think there's a lot to complain about, really. There were a few periods when it got a little bit static and you could see social media getting a little bit antsy about uh, you know being a repeat of last year's race, drawn out trains, that kind of thing. Actually, when it came to it, the cars could follow, could pass, could go wheel to wheel. They didn't look that unpredictable. You know, the accidents that happened, apart from the pit lane ones, which are quite bizarre, most of the accidents were fairly kind of standard indie accidents. I think the times when it got a bit static was actually drivers thinking we've got 500 miles of this race to, to cover. Let's not go crazy after 160 miles and start slamming each other into the wall at this point. Um, a bit of fuel conservation to extend the stints as well. So... Yeah, there was a little spell that you could have called boring, but I think it was boring for sensible reasons. And overall, this was a, a really quite raceable package and, and successful. It, it wasn't like wild pack racing. The passes weren't weren't easy. Um, every move Rossi and Pagano made on each other uh, at the end of the race was was a proper thought-through, brave pass. So, yeah, I think it's been a success. Uh, cars stayed on the ground. Cars went wheel-to-wheel. Race was fun. Yeah, good job, IndyCar. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to actually watching the race through uh, when I get back from uh, from Monaco. So, uh, thanks very much for your for your insight, Matt Beer. It's been uh, it's been good to get a bit of a feel for the Indy 500. Yes. Well, do check out autosport.com for all the latest fallout from the Monaco Grand Prix and from the Indianapolis 500 and, of course, the whole world of motorsport and pick up a copy of Autosport magazine out on Thursday, which will have in-depth coverage of both. Check out sister titles, motorsport.com. Motoring News out every Wednesday and F1 Racing Magazine out monthly. And also, if you like this podcast, remember it's uh, they're free to subscribe via iTunes. You can go to Spreaker, like us on the Spreaker website. And we have episodes out every Monday and Thursday, so loads of things for you to listen to if you've enjoyed this. And also, if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop Betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Auto Sport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.